0: So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today I am sitting down with David Silver. He's a securities fraud and investment loss attorney. He represents clients who have lost money, been defrauded, et He's got a couple of really big cases that we get into. One is this big SIM swapping that has been a big problem. People are getting their cryptocurrencies hacked into and stolen because of this. And so we talk about um, SIM swapping, what the case is looking like. Uh, we get into how you can protect yourself from SIM swapping. If it does happen to you, what you should do. Uh, we also get into some other stuff with Coinbase and the Burke versus Coinbase case, talking about the Bitcoin Cash Fork and what happened there, as well as a bunch of other legal issues that you should be aware of ramifications that you may have if you've had a loss and so much more good stuff. Let's go ahead and just jump right into it with David. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the market disruptors podcast. Today, I am sitting down with David Silver and he's an attorney working on securities fraud, investment loss, etc. And um, it's uh, he's got a couple of exciting things that he's working on we want to talk about. So let's just go ahead and just jump right into it. Hey, David. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Uh, Thanks thanks for taking the time to come on. Um, I know we've worked together a little bit, kind of had a relationship for a while, but uh, really just kind of excited to talk to you and hear about some of the bigger stuff that's going on in the market today that people should be aware of. Um, But for a little bit of background, why don't you just kind of tell everybody uh, who you are, um, where you're from, and how you got to crypto, what you're doing.
1: Sure. My name is David Silver. I'm a
0: founding partner
1: at Silver Miller. Um, I got crypto like most people accidentally. Um, I was sitting in a bar in 2012 in Utah and some guy was trying to impress. We were on a board of directors for a philanthropic organization and some guy was trying to impress the other four guys at the table They started talking about Bitcoin and the, first, the four of us kind of did what everyone did, especially back then. We shook our heads. We were like, this is nothing. I mean, come on. And he took all of our cell phones and he gave us, and at the time, I thought he gave us all the equal amount of Bitcoin, but he gave me five Bitcoin. He, op- he opened up a Coinbase account and gave me five Bitcoin wow. in 2012, which at the time was worth about 200 bucks. So I was like, ah, cool, some guy gave me a thousand bucks. He's going to jail. I'm never gonna touch this stuff. I'm never gonna have anything to do with it. And then I ended up doing a case for someone about crypto uh, against a company called Cripsy in 2015. And then when the shit hit the fan in 2017, I logged back into that account, the Coinbase account for the first time in about five years. And those five Bitcoin were worth about $130,000. Wow. And I, was like, and I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> and the guy never went to jail, which was a good sign.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it turns out that the other four guys at the table, he only gave them one Bitcoin each. And he was trying to impress me. And I thank him. It worked. I sent him some very nice bottles of wine when things were peaking. I still hold those five bitcoins. So I, while I'm not necessarily a... I have never... I can honestly say I have never bought a cryptocurrency. I have only received them. So I still... I guess if by accident, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist because I basically hold Bitcoin.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, through my lawsuits, I do now hold others by almost what i would call accident or you know the malfeasance of others because so i do take payment you know i do take payment and contingency fee i represent lots of people some of my big lawsuits are i've got the only class action against coinbase uh that's called like dell v coinbase i've got a big case against i've got a couple of big cases against kraken uh the biggest one relates to a flash crash in may 2000 17, God, it's been a while now. May 2017, when the price of ETH went from 95 to 26 over about two hours. I that case that. is actually set to be tried soon. I got some class actions. I was part of originally the class action against Tezos. I've got the class action against Gigawatt, BitConnect, OneCoin, Nano, Monkey Capital. And I guess what we're going to talk about today. I also do a lot of sim swapping cases. I got about 40 sim swapping cases where people's cell phones are hijacked in one one way or another and they lose a lot of their crypto.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a that's a lot of cases. You sound like a pretty busy guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, business, business, uh,
1: business is good for me, it's bad for other people.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. So I want to talk about the SIM swapping cause that's a hot topic and and it really relates to a lot of people. We should all be aware of it because it's a major security issue for sure. Um, but just kind of overall, um, it seems like, I mean, with a lot of these cases that you mentioned, you know, with the flash crash, for example, I mean, really it's about, um, holding these businesses, uh, whether they're exchanges or whatever, um, accountable for what they're doing. Right. I mean, that kind of sums it up. So, um, in, in the Kraken Flash Cash, for example, people were uh, subject to losses because they, they couldn't get in and sell their coins or whatever, um, and so holding them accountable, right?
1: So, basically, and if you don't mind, I'll share my screen for a second. Sure. Um, so, basically, we're going to walk through, just make sure I got the right one. Uh, which, oops,
0: which screen am I sharing?
1: See? I see yeah sim I swap. see your sim,
0: I see your SIM swap fraud um okay. so th- this is a podcast uh, f- so for the podcast I'll go ahead and uh, link to this uh link to this image for you guys
1: yeah so basically the image is showing you know it's the walking through for what a SIM swap is and SIM swapping effectively um there's I have my telephone I have my cell phone service with AT&T and At about one o'clock in the morning on a Friday night, SIM swappers will call AT&T and they will SIM swap and they will ask for AT&T to swap the SIM card from my iPhone to another phone. And effectively, what ends up happening is my phone, I lose the network access to AT&T and the hacker gets to take over the network access on their phone so all of my phone calls, my text messages, everything goes to the hacker's phone instead of mine. Is that like uh, porting your number over? It's so there are two types of there are two types of hacks. The porting is a little more complicated and hackers have stayed away from it uh, about 2-3 years ago, it was more popular for the hackers to port your number, but porting takes a day or two. The SIM swap is instantaneous. So they actually moved to the SIM swapping over the Sim over the porting, uh, they're actually after the consensus in May of 2019, the last main consensus in New York. Sim porting on Verizon became a problem again, and there were a lot of uh, sim ports. But for the most part, right now, what we're seeing are sim swaps, okay. not sim ports.
0: All right, so they're they're effectively the same. I mean, the same outcome. I mean, same risk to the user.
1: It's the same risk to the user you actually lose your uh, cell phone number on the SIM port. So that usually they'll move it from like AT&T to a smaller provider and it comes more complicated. Uh, With a SIM swap, the moment you realize you've been swapped, you can walk into an AT&T store and they can fix it instantaneously. Unfortunately, the hackers are so good. It takes them about an hour to clean out all of your email and all of your crypto accounts. Literally, we've seen it as quickly as six minutes.
0: So let's, so let's walk through that. So um, the hacker um, gets into AT&T's database or convinces a store employee to swap over the SIM, for example, and now they have access to my phone, uh, text messages, et cetera. And, and then what do they do with that?
1: So what ends up happening is when the hacker gets access to your phone, a lot of your accounts, and we have found especially your Gmail accounts and your iCloud accounts, are being are able to be reset on two-factor authentication through SMS confirmation. So what the hacker does is he logs into your Gmail, clicks, I forgot my password. Then Gmail will send him an SMS two-factor authentication back to the cell phone, which the hacker now controls. He'll reset your Gmail account and then use your Gmail account. He'll look for what emails you're getting. He'll look for... You know, if you have a Coinbase account, you know he'll know you have a Coinbase. He'll go to Coinbase. He'll then try and reset your Coinbase. The problem we've seen is a lot of people think they're protected because they have two-factor authentication with Google Authenticator or Authy, and it turns out most people's accounts, even the Google Authenticator or the Authy, are still tied as backup to their to SMS authentication and can be reset by having control of the cell phone. Hmm. And the second thing is a lot of people on their Gmail account keep their seed information so they can reset accounts or they keep their or they keep their backup for their authy or their authy or their google authenticator on their gmail or icloud. And icloud for instance you can't even unattach two factor authentication with sms right now. It's virtually impossible. Anyone who keeps anything stored on iCloud is the easiest hack out there. Hmm.
0: Yeah, interesting. I know, uh, I know with, with Gmail, it does obviously keep your phone number as well. Um, what, about, you know, what about people that have their two-factor authentication on a, like a separate device so it's not on their phone? Are you saying that that may not matter because if they get access to their phone number, they might not even need to have access to the 2FA?
1: So let's use something like Trezor, you know, where Trezor is its own backup. Right. There are a lot of people who keep their seed information in their email. Right. And some of the, so in some of the lawsuits, AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, they're blaming the user for not securing their crypto assets to the best of their ability. Right. And, you know, it's, it is a defense. So in theory, you should be protected if you're, you know, third party security. Your wallet is truly secure unfortunately what the hackers have found is they are most people use a backup for their security that backup is usually stored in their email whether it be their Gmail or their iCloud and they come in and they sit and they basically come in and they get through the back door of the security measure because most people are lazy and keep everything in their email accounts.
0: right So yeah, always a bad idea to keep your seed in your computer anywhere. I think we saw uh, uh, Ian Bellina said that he kept his in his Evernote account, which I use Evernote like crazy. Um, I think if you put it in Google Drive or uh, Dropbox, anywhere that's digital, you have the risk of a hacker getting access to that. So um, keeping your backup seed on paper is something that I've always done. But I am concerned, um, as you say, like, if they get access to the email that you log into your exchange with, and then they're able to reset your exchange with just your cell phone number and not needing the two FA. Um,
1: so here's where you know a lot of people have a false sense of security, whether they use Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, Bittrex, Poloniex, they'll think that they're safe because they're using Google two factor authentication or Authy to log into those as their second factor. So on Coinbase or Kraken, you can use SMS two-factor authentication. If you're using SMS and your phone's compromised, you're going to be compromised. Right. If you use uh, Google Authenticator or Authy, you can still be compromised if the hacker, the first thing the hacker looks for is the Google Authenticator or Authy emails in your Gmail account. So they are able to replicate out of your, if they can, they will change that and they will immediately then go after your exchange accounts. And they are, and they've been quite successful
0: at it. Interesting. So that frames up the, uh, that, that frames up the, uh, overall issue. Um, the, the big one that's uh, super popular right now, I know you said you have 30 or so that you're working on, but the one that's really taken kind of media headlines is this Turpin versus AT&T, um, some of that, uh, looks like, it, I mean, it, it came out, I think maybe they brought it up where like actually AT&T kind of has a history of being hacked and, and people getting access to it. Is that kind of what framed it up? And are they trying to show like negligence on AT&T's part there?
1: So the problem with the AT&T and Michael Turpin's case, and I, you know, at the end of the day, talk about Michael's case. I am not Michael's lawyer. I don't represent Michael. I have no inside knowledge about Michael's case. I want to make that clear. Um, I did sit next to Michael at Consensus on a panel where we both talked about SIM swapping cases. But effectively, what makes Michael's case unique is that Michael had his second fact. He had an enhanced security pin at, for his at and account. So most people, when they log into, when they go to an at and store, they get a four-digit pin. Michael had a six or an eight-digit pin. I personally had a six or eight digit PIN, and I also was a victim of SIM swapping. Oh. Uh, so AT&T is offering you an enhanced mechanism to uh, secure your account because they are aware this is a problem. So ironically, what ends up happening is that after we have these type of you know false sense of security measures, AT&T employees simply bypass your security when someone calls in and anyone can bypass by, you know, whether it's telling your birthday or giving some other personal information. Now we've learned through Michael's lawsuit and other criminal indictments that AT&T employees or contractors along with Verizon and T-Mobile were selling the consumer protected information that was used to access the accounts. So again, you know, there's, there's, Federal law at play here, state law at play here. And there's also the terms of service of AT&T at play here. Because AT&T, when you sign up with them, and this is just about Michael's case, but this is the same for any major carrier, not just talking about Michael's case exclusively. You waive your rights to a class action. Oh, wow. Think of how many people have been hurt, unlike Michael. So Michael lost about $24 million in tokens uh, at the peak of the market. Um, now he's suing for punitive damages of an extra $200 million. Really the only people who get punitive damages are on TV. You've ever, you very rarely see that in real life. Um, but what's interesting here is of even like the 30 and 40 people I represent, those are the people who have damages in excess of 20, 50, a hundred thousand, a million, $2 million in damages. I speak to so many people who have been hit and compromised who lost. Half a Bitcoin, you know, a thousand dollars worth of Ripple, because there's a class action waiver. None of those people are able to get representation by, you know, a contingency fee lawyer. I mean, I get yelled and screamed at all the time. Why won't you take my case? This is horrible. I've got this. I've got that. Yeah. So for every case I do take, I have to turn down four or five. But the hackers are doing in mass, and then are successful on a couple like Turpin, like you know, some of my clients. But for everyone they're successful on, they also probably fail on five to 10 you know, people they're hacking. But what do they do? They walk around Consensus. They walk around every crypto conference. They take everyone's business cards. Your business card has your email on it, your cell phone number on it, your name on it.
0: Oh, wow. They,
1: <laughs> even if they're not working with insiders, they, try, they can, some of them socially engineer backwards. But they are looking for, you know, most people at Consensus are trying to sound more important than they are. So they're gonna be like, I hold this token. I use Coinbase. I do X. I have my money here. And for the hackers, it's just, a, you know, sometimes people are their own worst enemies. They are trying to show off. They're trying to do things, and they're losing their own money.
0: Yeah. Wow. Uh, how 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 easy that could be once you get that that key information. I can see that. Um, it's interesting you talk about. Um, how AT&T gives you an extra security measure um, which, which tricks you into or kind of gives you this false sense of security, I guess. Um, when you have that, that extra measures that you've put in place showing that you have been proactive to be more secure, does that put more damage or, or claim onto them?
1: So, unfortunately, the answer is it's called comparative negligence. And while, every, while we're all trying to get AT&T to be fully responsible, AT&T's defense, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but their defense is, they're not an insurance company for you, for your assets, and they are not a, and they're not a security company for you, for your assets. So they're not responsible for, let's say, the fact that you turned around and decided to put your coins on an exchange that you know had extra security measures that you yourself did not avail yourself to.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So even if they're responsible. You're responsible because there's a third-party intervening act, i.e. the hacker or the criminal. And you're responsible because you yourself had your seed information for your Trezor wallet in your Gmail account. Right. You know, your Gmail account wasn't backed up with two-factor authentication. You could have stopped them getting your access. But the SIM swap itself is the first step of many steps. And if you had taken better protection in steps two, three, and four, you wouldn't have lost any money.
0: Yeah, I, I was curious. I'm with T-Mobile. Um, it seems like it's all around AT and T, but you did mention there's stuff going on in T-Mobile. When th- this had gotten hot, and maybe back in 2017, they had contacted me and said, "Hey, uh, we can lock your account. Do you want to like enable this, where um, you know nobody can change it unless you come into the store?" I said yes, but I think I've heard of the cases where even people had done that, but it still was getting swapped. Is that can- yes? That so. The
1: reason why people talk about Turpin, Turpin's in federal court in California, it's public. My 40 cases are all in arbitration and not public. So that's why those are all getting talked about. Right now, I would say I, mostly, I the large percentage of people I speak to are AT&T. The next is T-Mobile. Uh, the next is Verizon. And last is Sprint. I guess since they're going to be merging soon, Sprint and T-Mobile will be one.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I could see how they could say, I mean, hey, we can't be responsible for your whole life. I mean, we can be responsible for damages to your cell phone, but not $25 million in in crypto. Um, I kind of get that. But I mean, given their size and negligence, uh, I guess something, I mean, you wouldn't be taking these cases on if you didn't think there was an outcome coming, right?
1: Well, let's take it back because you're using a word a lot of people use when they call me up. They're like, well, AT&T is negligent in what they did. They're responsible. They're, the problem is when you sign your cell phone contract, it's basically like signing a mortgage. It's probably 30 pages long, their terms and conditions. Right. You actually specifically agree that they're not responsible for any negligence mm. on your account. Got you it. also specifically agree that your damages are limited. So, you know, it's, when I tell people, you know, what the value of their cases are worth, they're like, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, well, I understand that, but I don't make the law, you know? You, you know, you know, be very, like, I get to look at your Twitter account, you know, nowadays, and I'm like, look, all the people that you wanna vote for and you wanna have an office, those are the people who are protecting the big companies, not you. You know, if you wanna vote with your pocketbook, then, you know, you should vote for people who wanna give you access to the courts. You know, you may not like liberal Democrats, for instance, like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, But they are the ones who would allow you to sue. You know, if you vote for, you know, a Republican, you know, Republicans tend to say you shouldn't have access to courts. And I'm not meaning to make this political either way. I'm just saying that, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that the terms and conditions don't matter. The law doesn't matter. I got robbed. I want my money back, you know. And it's especially weird in the crypto community. We have so many libertarians and anarchists. You know, it's one of my most favorite quotes on, that I've had in my past. Everyone's an anarchist until they lose their money, then they want a lawyer.
0: Yeah, that's true, and and uh, I agree with that statement. I I tend to fall on that that side of the of the line, I guess. But I'm I'm willing to accept that responsibility. You know, I grew up. Um, I see uh, you know all these personal injury cases. I and uh, you know I see it's like people want access to land and they want to be able to go do these things and but then they get hurt there and then they want somebody responsible. So it's like we want the freedom, but we don't want the we don't want the responsibility that comes with the freedom, right? I guess that's kind of what you're saying.
1: Well, it's think of someone who, you know, wants to jump out of a plane and have a parachute on. You know, statistically, you're pretty safe if the parachute works and you know how to skydive. Right. But now you decide to take it one step further. You want to jump off of a bridge with a with a skydiving uh, pack on your because you think you're an outdoor adventure you know, sportsman. And all of a sudden, when you know, something goes wrong, because you only, you're supposed to have 20,000 feet, you only have 5,000 feet, you want to sue the guy who told you about going on the bridge. Yeah. Here, if your money was at you know, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and your cell phone was swapped, the hacker would take three days to get your money and you would get your money back. The fact that it's crypto and it happens instantaneously is the problem. I'll give yep. you another, for instance. I'll give you another great example. Okay. There's a lot of clients who lost their money in the U.S. on BitMEX. Now, I use Bitmax when you're a yep. the U.S. So now they're like, "Well, I want my money back. Someone stole my money." Well, where was your money? Well, I can't give you that information. I mean, you can't give me that information. Well, it's it's it was I was using BitMEX, you know, and BitMEX and the money was stolen. Well, what email address were you using? How are you logging in? Well, I had a Proton uh, email account that. You know the hacker got that I can't get back now. Yeah. Well, if you can't prove your damages, you can't sue, and that's become an interesting twist in this. You know, just it's kind of like you know two. It's kind of like two mafiosas. The first guy steals the money. The second guy steals the money from the first guy. The first guy wants to go to the cops. The cops say, "Where did you get the money?" He goes, "Well, I stole it from individual number one." You know, yeah. it's it's a real problem because this doesn't happen even on these hacks. If they don't get your legacy bank account. Right. There's a reason for that, and you know you got to pick and choose your poisons, and that's part of the telecoms defenses. If you were more secure, if you put your money in the banks, none of this would happen to you. Yeah. You want to do, use crypto? Live, live by crypto.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious. Um, I'm curious. You're talking about like proving this. So like. I would imagine there has to be some proof that there was damages. I saw in Turpin's case, for example, he had to show that uh, prove that the SIM swap led to loss. So, I've been hacked. I had a I had a hot wallet, an app on my phone, and one day I logged in and all my money was gone. But how can I prove that was hacked? All you see is a is a debit, out of the account. Again, yeah. I still to this day don't know how that happened. I have really good security and. It was just gone. How do I prove that was stolen and hacked and I didn't just transfer it somewhere?
1: So that's another good reason why people, you know, aren't getting hundred cents on their dollar in these cases, because that is virtually impossible to prove, given the nature. So what we, so things that we're doing, we do what we call an anatomy of the hack. We show how the hacker gets in, instantaneously goes, hacks your accounts in, you know, the U.S. exchanges, Use the information from the IP addresses on the U.S. exchanges. And there is just a mechanical way. But you're making a valid point and points the telecoms are making. Well, how do we know that it just wasn't you, that you're not faking it? I had a guy who claimed he lost $5 million. And when we kept hounding him for proof, he couldn't even provide the simple proof we asked for. And I looked at him. I said, you know, we can't if you can't prove the damages and you can't get me, the lawyer, your lawyer, to believe that your damages are legitimate, I will never be able to convince the other side.
0: Right. I guess um, if we could show that AT&T or whatever carrier did swap, swap the swim, um, SIM unauthorized, and then you could see these, uh, um, you know, the, the trail of, of, of the Gmail or whatever, and then the accounts emptied out, and it all happened within an hour, I guess that's kind of compelling. Yes,
1: but it's also something you can fake nowadays.
0: I couldn't fake. I couldn't fake AT and T having an unauthorized SIM swap. Well, no, you couldn't. But you can how give would I else, know that You can how give I know someone. Did you can it unauthorized. give
1: me your personal information. I can call AT and T and say, "I am. I'm Mark Morse. Here's my uh, number." And then you saw. I mean, and it's it's a legitimate. It's a legitimate concern to the telephone companies. I'm not giving them a new defense that they've never heard of. You know, yeah. talking to you about this. This is something they're well aware of. And it's another reason why, you know, it's hard to prove these cases. There's a reason why David Silver has most of them, because you can only do this in mass. To do this one off without people paying you is problematic.
0: Yeah. So um, then uh, just real quick, I mean, since you've been seeing this so much, then kind of to wrap up this talk, um, what can the average person do to protect themselves against this? One,
1: you should be have enhanced security on your phone. You should tell with the carriers. You should have enhanced pins. You should know what it is. You should store those pins, not in your you know, email accounts. Uh, two, you should use sec, two, two factor authentication with Google Authenticator and Authy. Again, not storing the reset account information or the seed information in your Gmail accounts. You should make sure your Gmail and your email accounts are secured by something other than SMS uh, password protection. That's really the key thing. You don't want to use SMS for any form of your second factor authentication. And that's really the starting point. The other things are you should not leave your crypto on an exchange that is not protected. I'll use Coinbase, for instance. You can now use Coinbase Vault, which requires two email addresses, and two days before money moves, right? You can use Bitracks. You can whitelist and only allow certain IPs access to your account.
0: Right. You know
1: there are measures, and if you have more than twenty-five, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, whatever the number in your mind that's too much to lose, those are extra security precautions you should be taking. Yeah. And I'll say this, and I say it all the time: what exchange you use matters. Um, so don't be don't be a fool and you know use exchanges that aren't in the U.S. and aren't the more legitimate ones.
0: I think it's also a good point that exchanges are not bank accounts and um, they're not meant to be bank accounts. They're not meant to secure and store your coins. And some of them, as you've mentioned, like Coinbase does provide like a vault, which is pretty cool. But most exchanges are not bank accounts. They're not meant to be that way. And you make an absolutely valid point that I want to reiterate, which is just the more money you have, the more serious you need to take your security. And uh, I, got,
1: I got SIM swapped. I didn't, lose, I didn't lose money. My personal data was compromised, but I didn't lose any crypto. And you know, at the end of the day, I create most of my crypto on exchanges because if something goes wrong, I want to hold people accountable. And, but there are certain security measures that I take. I use Coinbase Vault. And people say to me all the time, but David, you're suing Coinbase. You're you're you say how bad they are. First of all, I would sue Goldman Sachs every day and twice on Sunday if I had legitimate cases against Goldman Sachs. What crypto exchanges were in 2014-15 are not what they are today. I constantly praise Brian Armstrong and the Winklevite, you know, for what they're doing, working with regulators and trying to be transparent. And the more transparent and you know the better these exchanges come become the more likely it is that bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies go up in value and mainstream people will be able to use them because they feel secure about it
0: yeah that's a great point so um as a uh, as a, as as a builder in the space so let's say that i'm running an exchange or i have an app or some dapp that manages things like um what should I be, if I'm a builder, what should we be aware of to keep ourselves out of trouble? I mean, uh, I guess just making sure we, we're not negligent. I mean, we do our best. I mean, it seems like it's just kind of like a pretty dangerous space to be in.
1: So there are people who have written interesting articles on you know Medium about people like themselves who are in this space who have been hacked and what they did wrong. And most of it boiled down to a... Uh, It was a do as I say, not as I do. The amount of laziness in protecting their crypto assets was staggering. Whether it was Turpin, who, I mean, Michael had more, you know, ICOs, tokens than probably anyone in the space. Um, You know, there are other people who have posted and talked about how, yep, they had Gmail accounts with, you know, just SMS, two-factor authentication. I think people are learning. I think that people are starting to talk about this more, but it's, you know, as much as you want to blame others, especially in crypto where everything is somewhat masked and somewhat instantaneous, you are responsible for yourself. No one else, you know, it's your keys, your coins, Yeah. it's your coins, your money, you know, no one else is out there looking for you. They want to take it.
0: Yeah. Yeah um and and uh, one of the things that we love about bitcoin and and cryptocurrencies is finality right so when the transaction happens it's final but that works in two ways it it's bad so um as a as a user of the ecosystem as a user of coins exchanges and things like that um what kinds of things should i um be aware of that might happen to me that that possibly I could have a claim on right I mean so um, I was on an exchange and you mentioned like uh, all of a sudden I can't trade on it or um, obviously hacks are easy right but like what are some other things that we might be seeing or people might be aware of have have happened to them that maybe they should think about having a claim on
1: so this and this is a nice segue to Berk v Coinbase that we were going to talk about because Berk v Coinbase is my new it's, (laughs) it's my new favorite case of It's my new favorite case of the week. Um, Effectively, everyone should be talking about, everyone in crypto should be talking about Burke v. Coinbase because at the end of the day, this just changed the law. I mean, it is cases, case law is built one case at a time and a court in California came out and just, they said something crazy. They said that at the end of the day, crypto exchanges are responsible for maintaining functional marketplaces, and this functional, a dysfunctional marketplace is a liability for the exchange. What does that mean? <laughs> so, let's use a hypothetical situation. There's an exchange that has a flash crash, and the price of Bitcoin right now dropped from. I know it's trading out right now, twelve thousand bucks, a couple within a couple hundred bucks of that. Yep. If the price of Bitcoin on Coinbase went from 1200 to 300 and Coinbase allowed trading to go on, but locked everyone out of their accounts, except for insiders, right. that'd be insane that, you know, they would say there's something wrong, but we're going to allow people, you know, who have back, who are trading on, who had professional institutional accounts to come in and buy everyone's, you know... Sell orders that were going the cascading effects, that would be a dysfunctional marketplace. Because Coinbase would know something's wrong, they would allow that something wrong to continue, and they wouldn't stop the market. And what Burke said was they didn't make a judgment call about whether the BCH being sold at the time, whether that is the definition of a dysfunctional marketplace, because in that lawsuit, the accusation is. That during the first couple of minutes of trading, price spiked, some people couldn't get in, some market orders were placed, some weren't. The court didn't say that is, by definition, a dysfunctional marketplace. The court simply said that as it reads the law and as it believes, and it actually says it in the opinion, this is what we believe the California Supreme Court would decide. We are sitting, because it's a federal court case, there's a federal court judge interpreting what California law would say. And it said that we believe the California Supreme Court would believe that cryptocurrency exchanges are responsible for maintaining functional marketplaces. By the way, that's what they sell. That's what their advertising is. Look at Kraken's advertising, Coinbase's advertising, Gemini's advertising. They are selling to you. Use our exchange. We are safe. We are secure. And we serve a functional marketplace.
0: Right. So I don't- The the word dysfunctional sounds a little confusing. I mean, when you put it in those terms in your example, it sounds more insider kind of fraudulent activity. Like, hey, everyone's locked out, but our few people are able to take advantage of this market. Um, Dysfunctional to me sounds more like um, something outside of our control happens. So let's say, for example, Bitcoin shoots from 12,000 to 20,000 everybody jumps in to buy it and it's just too much volume and the the exchange can't handle it and the the site crashes. And that's like a legitimate problem. Would that be considered dysfunctional or it's kind of like, hey, we're locking you out, but we're allowing you in, which is kind of more insider.
1: So I think that's going to be what the courts, and that's why I say case law. This didn't change the law. The law builds one case at a time with jurisprudence. But what it says is, now we're gonna see what exactly you're asking. What is the line of dysfunctionality? Is it dysfunctional if I put in an order and it takes 0.1 second to go through, but the person behind me went through a point in half of that time? The speed equal dysfunctionality. That's gonna be a line. It's kind of like you know, uh using a real-world example. Um, someone who it used to be that you were allowed two drinks before you drive. Now you're allowed one and a half drinks before you drive. The line's constantly shifting and people are becoming more liable. The McDonald's case uh, where someone spilled hot coffee in their lap. Right. You now, before that happened, was it, if someone gave you a cup of coffee, it wasn't necessarily illegal for McDonald's to hand you a cup of coffee. And now you can get sued. Now McDonald's is still not illegal. It's still legal for them giving you the cup of coffee. But now if you spill it on yourself and it's 98 degrees and you burn yourself, they're liable. Someone had to go to court and draw that line and that distinction. But if you pour a cup of coffee on your lap, it's only 50 degrees and you don't burn yourself. That's okay. Here we're learning where the lines are going to be drawn. Um, I personally believe that if an exchange knows of a problem, and knows there's dysfunction in their marketplace, they have an obligation to shut that down, not look at users and say, no, this was dysfunctional, but we're gonna allow it to go because we're a a cryptocurrency exchange and there are no rules. Uh, Turns out there are rules in crypto and I'm proud of this judge. I think he did a great job.
0: Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense. I, you know, I, I, I would hate to see them being held responsible for things that were outside their control, but things that they could control and they allow to go on. I mean, somebody has to be responsible for that. You have to run an honest business, right? So, um, I get it from that perspective. So then overall, as a user in the ecosystem, um, I guess at the end of the day, if I have, um, suffered damages that I believe are because of negligence or because of purposeful wrongdoing, then then I potentially might have uh, some recourse, right? And then that's where someone would contact you.
1: So yeah, a lot of people reach out to me and about their cryptocurrency experiences and the recourse is, is unique to each case. I very rarely do what I consider lost profit cases. That doesn't mean that no one's ever gonna win a lost profit case, but it's very hard. Most people who call me up say, I bought Bitcoin at 9,000. I was gonna sell it at 13,000. Coinbase was swamped a couple of weeks ago and they went down for a little bit when it hit like 13,000, when they went from like 7,000 to 13,000 in a couple of days. And they were like, well, I was gonna sell at that exact peak <laughs> and I wanted that exact price. I wasn't able to. And now it's back to 9,000. And you know, there are a lot of people who feel that should be a case. Look, this what Berkby Coinbase said, maybe that is a good case. I'm not saying that that's not a winner, but most of the cases I handle, we do our analysis on a cost basis out of pocket. How much money did you put in? How much money do you presently have? And we do our analysis based on that because at the end of the day, this is a new technology, this is a new asset class. You know, it's some, there is some truth that there is some limited predictability.
0: But, so, um, wrong wrong. you, 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 you take care of losses, but not lost opportunities. I guess it'd be a good way to sum it
1: up. ask for lost opportunities in some of these, in some of the lawsuits, but most of the complaints I've heard on exchange related matters are lost profit cases. Okay. So if someone magically knew when the peak was going to be and they were going to sell at the peak.
0: Sure. All right. I know we got to start wrapping this up here. I'd like to just kind of ask you though, where you sit, um, in this whole ecosystem. So, um, I wonder if maybe being an attorney gets you a little bit uh, jaded where you start to see all the bad. I'm curious what you think about Bitcoin overall and cryptocurrencies. I mean, are you, are you a believer in Bitcoin? Do you see the future um, with that? Or are you still more of a skeptic and you see all the problems?
1: <laughs> I, I, I see it as cryptocurrency 2.0. I'm a believer in the technology. I'm a believer in cryptology. I'm a believer that this is moving in the right direction but we're still at the same point of the internet right now where everyone was just looking at porn and buying drugs. You know, we're building the more, the more usable aspects and when use cases are actually use cases is when crypto 2.0 will happen. I, you, as far as I'm concerned, you can spin, you put all 1200 or 2000 cryptocurrencies on a wheel, spin the wheel and that's going to be the one that's successful in the end.
0: So you think Bitcoin has as much of a chance as anyone else?
1: Well, I think the leader in the house and the bigger the mode, you know, I'm a Warren Buffett fan. So the bigger the mode, the more likely you are to succeed. You know,
0: I I, And the Lindy effect, effect, the longer you've been around, the more likely you are to be around.
1: Yeah. Everyone's testing Bitcoin more. There's more testing. There's more, you know, people who are trying to show what Bitcoin can and can't do. So I'm a believer in the space and the functionality. I believe I went to all the conferences in sixteen and seventeen where everyone told me every i c o was going to change the world. I'm still waiting for the use cases until there's use case. There's really no reason why it's trading at these
0: numbers. It's- you don't think Bitcoin has any use case at all today i mean uh, i i I mean I would argue like obviously if you were in an oppressive regime. Uh, even, even China today, we see a massive use case to Bitcoin, right? Where people need to get money out. People need to protect it. You, you, you know, we look at like illicit activities, uh, but that's also argued that's a use case. I mean, it's illicit, but like it, it's proving its case that it's being able to be used against opposition or whatever. So there is use case. Um, so,
1: but I'll agree with you, but I'll agree with you. Cause I do believe the use case to replace gold, you know, the Winklevi that's their big argument. You know, right. it's gold 2.0. Right. So I don't disagree with what you're saying, but that doesn't give it the value at 12. I believe it's heavily it's a heavily manipulated market. So we're talking about use case versus value now. I would agree with you that that's a use case. Yeah. in theory, if it works properly, it's censorship resistant, it's easily transportable, and you know it's got a lot of good value. But the problem is I believe it's a heavily manipulated market on valuation. So I'm comparing valuation to use.
0: But yeah, exactly. I wasn't talking valuations, we could argue till the day, you know, till the day is over. I was just talking about just, just use cases and where you saw it. I was like I said, just curious because I would imagine seeing all the bad maybe could taint you and maybe you start to like lose sight of like how big this is or something.
1: No, I think that I think that it's going to be it's a disruptor. I do believe that, you know, there's value in it. We're, you know, and when I give my speeches to people who've never seen Bitcoin or know what Bitcoin is or cryptocurrency. I say, look, take out a dollar bill. Look at the serial number. This is an enhanced version of being able to prove that the money you have is real. That's a use case. I believe in that. So, if that's the question, then yes, absolutely. And also, now, I think
0: also I'm curious on the just the differentiation because Bitcoin was launched anonymously, decentralized. Um, obviously was not a scam. Uh, the coin itself, now we talk about the exchange is different, but like now you deal with all these ICOs, right? And like a lot of them clearly are scams. And so like, uh, it seems like there's a huge divide, right? Bitcoin over here and everything else kind of over here, maybe.
1: Well, uh, for anyone who's positive in the space, they have to make that differentiation. So I totally agree with you on that. Um, so from the point of it being the aspect of, the ICO versus Bitcoin, yes, I completely agree with you. And I do think that the more use cases out of crypto, when we can show that there's no manipulation in the system, is when the next moon will happen. You know, there's got to be, they've got to remove, but for people like me, in order to remove that, you have to remove some of the things that the OG crowd loves. You're going to have to remove some of the anonymous factors in it.
0: I would, yeah. I would love to see, I would love to see the manipulation of the gold and silver markets go away, and that's been a few thousand years. So,
1: <laughs> and and that's my example. When people ask me about, you know, well, look, you know, you got all this fraud in, you know, the marketplaces. You have the bank failures. The you know, look, look at how much regulation is there, and how much fraud is still there.
0: Almost the more regulations there, the worse it gets. Uh, but
1: yeah, at the end of the day, I feel more comfortable putting my money in the bank than I do in the cryptocurrency exchange. So I don't disagree with you that there, that there is a ton of fraud under the regulation, under a regulated society. But in unregulated society, I think the fraud's going to be even worse.
0: Yeah. And we should always be, op- we should always be optimizing for the risk. So uh, okay. just take that into consideration. This, it, I, I agree 100%. We're super early in this technology. It is not – I don't believe it's a store of value today. It's definitely not a money today. Um, it's a collectible. It's a speculative asset. And uh, manage your risk accordingly, right? So um, good it good, better myself. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, I, I'd like to talk more a little bit about, about some of the, the manipulation and whatnot, but, but we're out of time. I have got to respect your time. Um, but I appreciate you coming on. So uh, for anybody who thinks that uh, they may have been taken advantage of or something like that, what's the best way to reach out to you? Or think, so go to what, my what's website they be Before Sil- they reach out to you.:
1: <laughs> So go to the website, silvermillerlaw.com. Follow me on Twitter. DC Silver is my Twitter handle. Um, And just look me up. Whatever you do, if someone takes advantage of you, find a lawyer who has experience because someone out there can help you.
0: Yeah, great. All right, David. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, man. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.